This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Kidney stones are often as small as a grain of sand. However, despite their small size, they have the potential to cause really significant pain. They're quite common and represent one of the most common disorders of the urinary system. And when symptomatic, stones are relatively easy to diagnose as they tend to cause a very characteristic clinical presentation. While most stones will pass through the urinary system, others will require a variety of treatment options. Today's topic is kidney stones, and we'll discuss the diagnosis, management, and prevention of stones with Dr. Ivan Porter, a nephrologist at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Ivan, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, are there some individuals more likely than others to have kidney stones? Absolutely, there are. And there are multiple reasons why that may be the case. Family history goes a long way. Somebody with a family history of stones is three times as likely to deal with stones at some point in their life. So yes, we know that genetics play a huge role, but there are also comorbid diseases and other processes that certainly put people at risk for stones, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, things that affect the GI tract, diabetes in and of itself, obesity in and of itself. There are a number of other risk factors, including the jobs that we take. Some people don't have access to the bathroom. Some of my most difficult stone patients to prevent stones in are teachers, truck drivers, these people that always have low volumes and they don't drink a lot because they don't know when their next bathroom trip can be. Obviously, those are behavioral issues. Those are kind of social issues and genetic issues as well. But certainly, there's a wide spectrum of those that have to deal with kidney stones. And as high as 20% has been quoted as in males. 10 to 12 is usually about the lifetime incidence that we quote for stones, a little bit higher in men than women. But every year that we look, every time this is studied, that number is increasing. Furthermore, if we look at locations that start to have a more Western diet, we see the increased association of stones as well. So we know that there's a dietary component that increases risks of stones also. That's interesting. I hadn't uh, appreciated that. What are the most common types of stones that patients can uh, develop? Calcium stones are by far the most common. There are subtypes of calcium stones. Calcium oxalate is the absolute most common type of stone, but calcium oxalate and calcium phosphate can make up to 85, 90% of kidney stones. The next most common would be a uric acid-based stones. After that, nine or 10% of uric acid stones is everything else. We've got our drug-related stones. We've got other genetic causes, cysteine stones that occur, infection-associated stones. All those are in that small swath, but calcium stones are definitely the most common types of stones that we see. All right. When a patient has symptoms from uh, a stone, it's usually pretty easy to make that diagnosis, but are there clues that a patient may have one or more kidney stones before they have any symptoms? A lot of stones are found incidentally, surprisingly, I guess not that surprisingly. Our imaging techniques are a lot better these days. So very reasonable to consider you're going for some other scan and somebody says, oh yeah, hey, you've got a kidney stone right here. Never had any issues, never passed one, didn't know about it um, and may not ever have to deal with it. But we do know that about a third of those patients are going to have to require some procedure or pass a stone within the next five years. So the presence of that incidental stone is important. 
obviously we all think about the pain complaint. So somebody has pain, pain with urination or flank pain, radiating to the groin, that's pretty typical. But the family history can sometimes make you think that someone might have a risk of having some more stones. Also, some of those behavioral issues that I spoke of. I've been taking vitamin D for the last 10 years because that's what someone told me to do for general health. Oh yeah, I take calcium supplements as well. Some of these behavioral activities can also put people at risk for having more stones than others. I found uh, stones in a variety of patients where I'm pursuing a uh, problem with uh, asymptomatic hematuria and, uh, you know, do the CT urogram and there's one or more stones and uh, nothing else is found. So you presume that's the cause of their blood, but uh, that's the way I tend to find a fair number of them. That's certainly common, that asymptomatic hematuria. And in those cases, if somebody doesn't have an active stone in the urinary tract that you see, or that doesn't look like one that's passing, we still should do the full urologic evaluation to be sure that that's the source of the hematuria. Mm -hmm. But certainly I have patients that have a large burden of kidney stones and always have a little bit of hematuria there as well. My goals are remain the same, no more stone growth. I wanna make them a non-active stone former, change the environment so that no more stones are going to form. So the stones that they have aren't going to get bigger. And I always tell my patients, those stones can stay there forever. If we don't need to have a urologic procedure, then we won't have a urologic procedure, but that all starts with prevention. Well, no matter how we find the stones, let's say we find a patient who has a one or more kidney stones, how can we determine what size stones will typically pass on their own? There have been some studies on this in the past. A good general rule is that kidney stones that are smaller than five millimeters will likely pass spontaneously. Some may take longer than others. Some may take more help than others, like from medical expulsive therapy or alpha blockers to relax the ureter. Just increased fluid might help. But it's a good thought that if you see one that's five millimeters or smaller, it will pass on its own. I have, however, seen obstructing stones that were two millimeters in size, okay, that had to be extracted with a basket extraction or laser lithotripsy. So everyone's a little bit different. But we also know that as you get above five millimeters, the likelihood of passage reduces exponentially. So the larger that stone gets, sure. the less likely it's going to be passed without some help from our friends in urology. Let's talk about imaging studies next. I've been around long enough that I remember ordering KUB with tomograms to uh, evaluate whether there were stones in the kidney. We don't really do that anymore, but what imaging studies are best to evaluate the patient for stones? I think all that work in this field will agree that ultrasound and CT are the best imaging studies. Then there's some, a little bit more nuance after the fact, right? The CT will tell me a lot of characteristics about a stone that I can't get from an ultrasound. An ultrasound will tell me, are they obstructed? Are there stones there? Probably could be vascular calcifications also. So there may be a little bit less clear from the ultrasound image. But if what you're looking for is, hey, is there obstruction? Then the ultrasound is fine. And hey, did they pass that stone that was causing obstruction a couple of weeks ago? Ultrasound is fine. I often have a discussion with my patients about the utility of CT imaging in follow-up for stone prevention, because I can see if six months ago, what I saw in your urine profile and what I told you to do differently to change your urine profile, if it corresponded to no stone growth, are you now a non-active stone former? Or did you have growth in stones despite the improvement in the urine profile, meaning that there's more to be done, that we haven't done enough work? So 
really both are useful. People are worried about radiation and rightfully so. So knowing a little bit about your center's radiation dose, we use a dual energy CT that uses a very, very low dose radiation. So I feel confident telling certain patients that will get a yearly CT, especially if they have a lot of stone activity. Some people don't want that. They want just an ultrasound. And I just explain the limitations of what I can find. I'm not going to be able to tell differences in size from an ultrasound more than likely. But the sensitivity of the CT is 90 to 100%. The sensitivity of an ultrasound is, you know, 50 or less. Again, they have different roles, but they both have roles. And it likely depends on the outcome that you're expecting from the imaging test itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's say a patient has a stone or two or more. When should we put them through a full evaluation, including, you know, 24-hour urines for, you know, the variety of things, phosphate, oxalate, calcium, and so forth? That's fair. Questions that may have a difference of opinion. Here I am at a specialized stone center. When I see a stone, I want to make sure that there's no other cause of that stone. I assess for hyperparathyroidism. I do a 24-hour urine collection. I think an easy thing to think about would be, do I know why this person would have made a stone? Obviously, if they are very, very young, they require a full metabolic evaluation and you should go to the finish line. We should not have a stone at age 10. There's something else to look at to figure out why. If someone was diagnosed with a new medical problem, there's a reason to look for a stone in those cases. But again, I think for even the single stone episodes, it's worthy to look for the risk factor of why if you can't find it from just talking to the patient. I just started this new outdoor job. And at the same time, I started taking these supplements. And then in this year, I developed a new stone. That's a believable scenario to where you could probably get away with not thinking that you needed to do a full metabolic evaluation, but I would. And again, I think that's more of a factor of where I work and how I work and who I see every day. Sure. Okay. So let's turn to treatment now. Let's say we have a patient or we have found a stone at the is asymptomatic, we'll say, uh, what should we tell them is the initial treatment? Absolutely. And that gets to my point about a 24-hour urine evaluation on all of these patients, even with their first stone, because that really tells me what we should focus on. I think everybody can focus on more fluid. And in some scenarios, you can't get more fluid in. Think about your gastric bypass patients. You know, some people just can't get a lot of fluid in. So that's already a strike against them. So you have to focus on other things to try to reduce risks. But obviously fluid intake. And then I look at a urine profile. I look and see what their average sodium intake is. I look and see if they have high oxalate values. I look and see if there's a high amount of calcium, which could be genetic, could be related to their salt intake. I look for the natural stone inhibitors that are present, like citrate levels and magnesium levels. I look at the urinary pH. Some stones like to form in certain pHs, and if we alter the pH, we can reduce the risks of stone formation. That initial recommendation beyond fluid intake and beyond dietary calcium, it requires that metabolic evaluation. Well, you mentioned that the majority of stones are calcium-containing stones, and one of the things that we tend to promote in our patients is an adequate calcium intake. Uh, does that create a problem in encouraging patients to take foods containing a fair amount of calcium or a calcium supplement in those who we know have had calcium containing stones? A lot of my visit time is taken up by explaining the relationship between dietary calcium in the form of low-fat dairy versus the calcium supplement that someone might take or the Tums that someone might be taking. We know that 
Number one, why low fat? Because this will mean less oxalate absorption. So higher fatty foods, regular fat dairy, that's just going to cause a little bit more oxalate absorption and would increase the risk theoretically for stones. So three servings of low fat dairy at the time of meals will allow the calcium in that dairy to bind with other oxalate and other foods, and it will actually reduce the risk of stone formation by reducing those values. When we take elemental calcium and calcium supplements, we tend to absorb more, and thus we tend to put more calcium into our urine, thus increasing our risk of stones. So knowing that dairy in the United States is fortified with vitamin D, that is a way to get an adequate amount of vitamin D for bone health and immune system health, simply by having dairy with your meals and not increasing your risk of stones. I have seen patients who have known calcium containing stones take a thiazide purely to uh, decrease the amount of calcium in the urine. Is that still done? Absolutely it is. I kind of have an arbitrary cutoff. I like to see hypercalciuria or urine values of calcium that are less than 200, less than 150 in some. If I can't get there simply by reducing sodium intake and reducing protein intake, then that is the time where I would use a thiazide diuretic. Chlorthalidone is great because of its longer half-life, better than the hydrochlorothiazide in my personal practice. And dapamide is another good one, especially if we're dealing with somebody that's normotensive, doesn't really have high blood pressure. If they do have high blood pressure, it's a, it's a no-brainer. That's a person that I would use a thiazide diuretic for because yes, it will reduce the amount of urine calcium. You have to look at the serum calcium, make sure that you're not raising that, but it, it will reduce urine calcium. So it might actually be a really good choice in a patient who you've now diagnosed hypertension and also has known calcium-containing stones where you'd actually be treating two conditions with one medication, something we're always trying to strive for. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit, not much, about our uh, urology colleagues. When do they need to get involved in patients with stones? The urologist will tell us that if we have intractable pain, no matter what I do, the pain won't go away, can't be controlled. If we are vomiting, thus we can't control the pain because we can't get medications in, or if you're having chills or signs of some infection, that's a reason for urology to intervene immediately. Our urology colleagues are going to be involved if they see an obstructing stone that has been given a chance to pass and isn't going to, or is large enough that it's going to be unlikely to pass. So while we can visualize that with a CT scan, the findings of that CT is really what drives whether or not urology has to intervene now or be on the ready to intervene if we don't have good results. Are stones dissolvable? Are any of the stones uh, able to be dissolved with a variety of medications, fluids, anything? I often tell my patients that I know they have stones and they can stay there forever. And we don't care about that. We just don't want them to grow. We don't want to have an environment where they're likely to develop some new friends. We do know that uric acid stones will dissolve if you get that pH above six and a half. So if you can reliably get your pH that high and keep it that high, the uric acid stones that you have simply dissociate. We do also know, however, that many times there are mixed stones. So there may be a calcium shell around it. There may be a calcium nidus that the uric acid has formed. So it may not completely cure you of stones just to change the urine pH. But we also know that other stones don't like to crystallize, like your cysteine stones. That's another one that citrate is often used for. 
simply because it's harder for them to crystallize and, and propagate into new and into bigger stones. However, we also know that changing the urinary pH in a patient that had uric acid stones to now 6.5, 6.8 may put them at risk for calcium phosphate stones. So we have the, the opposite effect of potentially causing more stones just by raising the urinary pH. So you've got to be careful. And that's why it's good to know the type of stone that you're dealing with. Some radiology technologies like the dual energy CTs can give you an idea of the composition of stones. Oh, this is likely a urate-based stone. This is a calcium-based stone. Even some other algorithms can tell you, oh, this is a cysteine stone. This is this type of calcium phosphate stone. Um, not everyone has access to that information, but knowing a stone type that someone's had in the past can sometimes help in determining what the best strategies are, especially when we're talking about urinary pH. One of the reasons why I like for patients to collect all their stones. So just because you passed a calcium oxalate stone 10 years ago, doesn't mean that I'm going to treat you the same way when you develop your next stone. I want to know what that stone composition is. I want to know what today's urine profile is, because there's some evidence that urine profiles change over time too. What your supersaturation profile showed me at age 39 may be different from age 59, and that might require a difference in how you're treated. Well, Ivan, this has been a great discussion. Why don't we conclude by asking you to give maybe two or three key points regarding uh, kidney stones to summarize? I can give three points. One thing to focus on is all day intake. It's one thing to say, oh, it's four o'clock. I forgot to drink all my fluid today. Let me get it all in. Now, obviously that's going to be problematic because you're probably up all night going to the bathroom. So that's never a good thing. Not just saying like drink a gallon. I like to give specific examples of how you can get intake in. You wake up, go ahead and get some water. You have this, that's a time to get some more fluid. Think about your breaks. Because again, if we're talking about adherence, just me saying, drink this much fluid, see you next time, versus me giving strategies for how you can sneak more fluid in and how you can be more consistent throughout the day, that has the likelihood to be more successful. Second, patients should really focus on the dietary benefits that can come. The dietary calcium, the use of fruits and vegetables. I always tell patients that fruits and vegetables are going to give me four things. They're going to give me fiber content. That's good for you. They're going to give me water content. That's less you have to drink. They're going to give me magnesium and citrate. In most cases, those are all going to be stone inhibitors. So just increasing your servings of fruits and vegetables are going to go an extremely long way. And don't use supplements that you don't need. Make sure you know what's in the supplements. Make sure you've talked to someone about it. The dietary piece is huge for stone prevention. And lastly, I would just say it's about lifelong prevention. Our urology colleagues like to see you when you have a stone event and they take care of you immediately. And that's great. That's what they do. My role is prevention. Your role is prevention. We must talk about strategies that will help this patient not be at risk for stones for a long time. And that may change as their job changes, as where they live changes, as how they eat, how their weight changes, as their comorbidities change, but it's a lifelong process. So you have to be willing to play the long game as well. Well, we've been discussing kidney stones with Dr. Ivan Porter from the Mayo Clinic. Ivan, that was a great discussion. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week 